You're listening to Dirt Cheap, a Neon Hum podcast. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. The only married podcast team in America. We like to believe it. So in this podcast, which we are hosting together. Right. I'm going to read you a book. Uh Uh-huh. And we are going to talk about it. The book we're going to read is called Murder in the Glass Room. It's a weird old book that our friend Jonathan gave me. And Amanda, I know why he gave it to me, because we know weird old books. We've been reading oddities, and we grew up in swap meets and flea markets. Right. And then we ran a publishing company where people asked us, why did you publish this? Yeah, I think we're we're definitely the type of collectors where people go into our home and go, why do you have this? <laughs> right. Well... That ends now. Finally. (laughs) We no longer have to explain ourselves. We can just point to the podcast. So, Amanda, what's your overarching opinion in terms of, like, reading these things and experiencing these things now in a 2020 lens for things, you know, 50, 60 years ago This book features some misogyny and some racism and some bigotry. How do we, as modern readers, look at this stuff? Should we just uh, throw it in a landfill? Should we go back and re-experience these things? Do we need Whoopi Goldberg here? All books deserve to be read, mocked, (laughs) scorned, (laughs) loved. (laughs) Yeah, I would rather dredge these things up and put them under the black light and uh, shake them in front of uh, our present fellow countrymen. This is a beautiful <laughs> metaphor forming, blossoming before my eyes here. So the the book is a copyright 1946. When our friend told us about the book, my first instinct was, oh, I'll Google it. It is practically ungoogleable. That's like... Hard. There are very few <laughs> records that this book exists, which is very funny. What um, does the publishing industry not want us to know? We're 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 going to find out. So I wanted to uh, I want to give you a couple things to look out for with Phil. Okay. Um. So and Phil is our main dude. Yeah, you're gonna. He's definitely uncharacteristically. Sensitive. Okay. Um, kind of a bumbler. And his flaws are pretty out there in the open. And he has one thing about him. I don't want to spoil it, but there's one thing about him that's really interesting. And uh, we'll get to it. All right, I'm taking the book out of my bag. Here we go. Amanda, this is the cover for uh, Murder <laughs> in the Glass Room. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> why don't you describe uh, what we are looking at here? In your your bottom left uh, side, you've got this blonde damsel in distress with the cleavage of a strumpet. Uh, she looks either terrified or just like grossed out. Um, and her hands are kind of up in like, oh, what's going on? And there's uh, just kind of a disheveled looking trench coat man holding onto the door and staring at her very intensely. Yes. This doesn't feel like a cover. It feels like 
I've walked into something. Right. Like I was going up the stairs in my four floor walk up and went like ended up going past like a domestic dispute that was spilling out into the stairwell. You like went up the stairs, like, saw what was happening and just went down the stairs. Yeah, I was just like, oh, I'm going to go to Starbucks. <laughs> Till this blows over. Yeah, like, that's that's the a, vibe I get. Okay, here's the back cover copy for the book. A murder rap was a natural for bookie and ex-gutter snipe Phil Norris. From the day he found lovely Edna's body on the floor in the glass room. Spoiler, by the way, right on the back cover. Uh, Norris was on the lamb, one step ahead of the coppers, and two long jumps behind a murderer. Only one person could help him beat the rap, and Phil had learned the hard way that he couldn't trust a woman. Wow. What do you think? Wow. This is the sales copy. Like, okay. This is it. Yeah, it's, uh, it is truly wild. And I, I think this would be a good time to mention this book features domestic violence and violence against women and patriarchy nonsense bullshit in general. So... You may not want to listen to this podcast if those things are true. Okay, so you. content warning is necessary Content here. warning is definitely necessary on that. One thing before we dive in and we start reading, I start reading this book to you. Uh, this book has something very strange before the first chapter. It has a cast of characters. I don't know if this was common for books of this era, but it here it is, a cast of characters. Phil Norris was a bookie, a straight guy, but tough as they come. Edna Norris was his wife, dot, 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 until he found her dead in the glass room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that slam dunk sales copy. Like, got, I am, they got, they got me on that They got one. the murder in the glass room, like, even before technically the book starts. Jerry Stearns was Phil's partner for years but not a man to throw money away when he didn't have to. Murdoch was a smart cop. He had reasons for liking Phil. Murdoch! Uh, Shelly Callaghan was a newspaper gal, smart, beautiful. She'd been around. Professor Stanley was the head of Veterans United and other assorted rackets. Oh, I love it. Rosa Martinez had her own notions about morality. Oh, God. And she lived by them. Carlos was Rosa's boss. Oliver Martin was a shriveled up old man, but he lived at an important address. <laughs> Why would you say that? The wife. Now? He lived at the White House. <laughs> he was the president. <laughs> and finally, Willie had a grudge against Norris. Okay. So, Amanda, this book takes place in 1945 Los Angeles. Right. We're a couple. We live in Los Angeles. We sure do. What do you think our lives would be like as a married couple in 1945 Los Angeles? <laughs> oh, um, okay. Pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> well, okay. We we currently live in West Hollywood, which yeah. I don't even, that wasn't a thing then. I don't get yeah, I, I think, think it was it just existed. like a dirt patch just west of regular Hollywood. It was just uh, a bunch of scarecrows. It was a scarecrows. And just a bunch of shrugging scarecrows. <laughs> and the sign's like, maybe later, a town. Maybe later, yeah. <laughs> Check here in 20 years. Right. Uh, as a married couple, 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, as me, a black, and you, a Jew, one Jew, <laughs> right. like, uh, yeah, we like. I don't know if we would even be allowed to live in Los Angeles. We definitely would not be married. We would probably be some kind of underground couple. Well, yeah, we could be married, but like, yeah, it would have to be a cool secret, like, I guess. Like, we'd be one of those cool, bohemian, creative couples right. that got married in like Antigua, and then we like came back yeah. to the US. And we, we, yeah. And we teach. T Reiki yeah, or something, <laughs> whatever the four 1945 version of Reiki is. I don't even know. Maybe we run like an underground bookstore. Yeah, we ran an underground bookstore. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> We've created More this like, whole fanfic oh, of The only ourselves. thing I, I'm just imagining is like us not being allowed to go to a public pool. <laughs> it's like us arriving at a public pool with like our with like our swimming trunks and our towels and everything and it'd be like, no blacks, no Jews, no dog sign. And be like, okay, <laughs> not invited here. <laughs> a check, please. <laughs> No pool for us. Yeah, just <laughs> you and I just innocently walking to places and being refused entry. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> well, back to the book. You know that that that's the thing we're here to do. Although right. although we could continue to fantasize about us in different time periods. That also might be a fun show. All right, here we go. Chapter 1. Page one. It was raining harder now, and the water was cascading in a solid sheet down the windshield of my convertible. By the way, convertible. Make a note. This is somebody who loves to talk about their possessions. <laughs> And this is right at the top. We have his convertible. And re what reason would you have to brag about your convertible if the top wasn't down to say it was a convertible, you know? It's just to say, I have a convertible. I am a rich person. It's incredible. <laughs> the wipers had jammed. I couldn't even see the nose of the car. Even in the downpour, traffic was heavy on the strip. I braked slowly, hoping the driver behind me wouldn't ram me. I had just laid out 40 bucks to have the left rear fender straightened, and I wasn't in any mood to make those repair robbers any richer. I gave the wiper button another try. Somewhere outside the car, an auto horn honked excitedly. In my anxiety, I almost jerked the knob out of the dashboard. Jerk the knob, by the way. High nice. five. High five? Nice. For no reason at all, the wipers suddenly started and cleared the glass. I stuck out my arm, getting my sleeve all wet, and waved the car behind me to go ahead. I could see now that I had driven blind almost to where I was going. So not a safe driver. All right. <laughs> I pulled up in front of the Durant Towers, a doorman in a purple uniform with enough gold braid to make a full admiral jealous, clicked the door open and held a huge umbrella over me. Will you be needing the car again soon, Mr. Norris? Put it in the garage, Joe. I'll be in all afternoon. I fished a dollar out of my pants pocket and gave it to him. Everybody has his racket, and even a doorman has to live. Second profession, 
that he hates. Doorman. Even a doorman has to live. <laughs> the doorman racket. What a scheme it is to he, take I, take shit from it, your from your tenants all day. And ah, uh, yeah, racket. Yeah, that's your racket, bucko. <laughs> your racket, my racket. Yeah. I got a racket. You got a racket. <laughs> he whistled for the garage boy. I turned to go inside, but I found the entrance blocked by a little man in a weedy tweed suit. He was standing there, tense and angry. When I got close to him, he almost exploded. It's about time, he spluttered. I thought to myself, here it starts again, and nudged him gently inside the door. Lousy bastard, the little guy yelped, making me stand out here in the rain and get my only good suit soaked. Look, Willie, I said, what is it now? Willie hopped up like a mad grasshopper. What is it now? He said. You know goddamn well what it is. When the hell are you going to settle up? So this is Willie. You are meeting Willie. Okay, so that's he has Willie. A gr- he has a grudge, and uh, and there is a reason that he has a grudge. He'd owned a little tiny run-down cigar store back when I first started up in business for myself, and I'd given him his first break by letting him handle a few small local bets for me on a commission basis. He had made out all right for a few months. In fact, I had practically enabled him to keep his store open. And he would have done even better if he hadn't taken it into his head to start making book himself and hold out bets on me. Oh my God. I hadn't minded that especially. This is a free country and everybody has the right to be a bookie. Amanda. In America, does everybody have the right to be a bookie? In Isn't a way, it illegal yes. to be a bookie? Okay, I mean it is the mid '40s, so I think the implication is just white dudes like him, it, who seem to be the only people he associates with, anyway. Right. When an old customer called me up one day and complained that Willie had taken a bet in my name and hadn't paid off. I decided it was time to call the whole thing off. Without the added revenue I had thrown Willie's way, the store began to lose business, and in a matter of weeks, it gave up the ghost entirely. Since then, how Willie has managed to exist, I had no idea. He had been on Uncle Sam's army payroll for a couple of months before they found out what a crackpot he was and chucked him right out. All I knew was that he had hounded me sporadically with the wrath of a frustrated rabbit. So is he ill or is he just a bad dude? Which one? <laughs> uh, the, I guess Willie. Well, I I think this is like a Seinfeld situation yeah, where like multiple right. people are wrong in the same instance. Look, Willie, I said, you broke again. Here's 10 bucks. Uh, Willie spat on the bill I held out to him. The warm saliva landed on my wrist. Ooh, that's a description. I mean, that's, yeah. That's fun, right? Just imagine wet saliva on your wrist right now. He could have described anything. He really could have. And he chose that. He he chose that. In a book without a lot of uh, flowery description, the things that the authors do choose to describe are very interesting. Oh, man. Ten bucks, he howled. What the hell good is ten bucks to a man in my position? 
I started to walk towards the elevator, wiping my hand with my handkerchief. You, with all your dough, offering me a lousy ten bucks? Willie yelped, tagging along after me. His voice was shrill with his crazy obsession. If the law in this town wasn't crooked, I'd be living in a dump like this, giving you a lousy ten-buck handout. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> Willie's that's Willie's dream. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Willie every night just dreams of being Phil Norris in his convertible, living in his dump, in his cool dump. That's what Willie wants. Oh man, I mean, the, they have an emotional entanglement. I would say. <laughs> By the way, $10 in what, like the 40s? That's yeah. That's probably what, like 100 bucks? It's not no money. It's like, right. and that's something it we have like to remember. It feels like a showy amount of money. You'll see what the problem is in a minute. Okay, great. But uh, but it's not no money. $10 in, yeah, it's probably, yeah, like 100 bucks or something like that. It's, it's, it's significant. Willie grabbed my lapel. Look, I'll be fair with you, he whined. You give me 2,000 bucks, and we'll call it square. 2,000. That's all I'm asking. That's fair, isn't it? You owe me thousands and thousands and thousands, and all I'm asking for is two grand. Isn't that fair? Isn't it? His voice was pleading. The elevator door whirred open, and the elevator boy said, uh, Afternoon, Mr. Norris. Please, Willie, I said. We've been over this a hundred times. Don't be a pest. As the elevator doors closed, I still heard Willie's voice. Oh, only 2,000. Only a lousy 2,000. The gold and chromium elevator shot me up to the seventh floor. With Willie out of my sight, I was beginning to feel better again. I must have been feeling better because as I walked down the long corridor, I began to play a kid's game. I stepped on all the cross lines in the carpet, making sure I didn't miss a single one. The idea being to keep the devil down where he belonged. So, kind of a funny image. I mean, imagine, I, I guess if you're looking at the cover, like imagine this 1940s, this like dour, scary 1940s guy in like a trench coat and, and hat. Yeah. Uh, like skipping like a child on a carpet is like a funny image. I mean, he's been built up to be so gruff. <laughs> uh, and now he's hopping on the cracks to not break his mama's back. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to imagine it and it's dumb. <laughs> it's a little dumb. I, as an adult do skip on sidewalks sometimes. I do avoid cracks sometimes. I do do that sometimes too. I didn't see her when she came out of Suite 707. I guess I must have been concentrating hard on the game because suddenly I heard somebody <laughs> laughing. She was a good looker, tall and blonde and luscious, and her laugh started way deep inside her and poured out full and warm, the way it comes only when you're feeling really good. High five. High five. I believe these are the authors describing a woman's laugh like a penis ejaculating. Yes. Amanda, confirm or deny. That's what it sounds like. It sure did sound like that. Yeah. It sounds like she was either like barfing pure light <laughs> or, yeah, or they try to transpose <laughs> describing a hand job into a woman's laughter. I'm very confused. 
but <laughs> continue. Oh, bye. I'd be happy to. She looked expensive enough to be living in the towers. Momentarily embarrassed, I balanced myself on one foot and grinned back at her. Watch out, she said, laughing, or the devil will get you. Oh, you know the game too, I asked. <laughs> you want to play? This is hot flirting. This is, yeah, this is, they are they are definitely flirting. Um, so, so yeah, Phil is attractive. Uh, it's attractive hmm. to luscious, beautiful women, apparently. I mean, enough. Who look expensive. Who look expensive. Uh-uh, she said, and went past me down the elevator, laughing all the way. So it's like, yeah, that's flirt. I would say flirting. She wasn't like laughing at him. I think no. they were, they were like flirt. I think that's like a flirt. Yeah. It's like a solid flirt. She could easily have just been polite. Right. That's right. And by the way, another, in Phil's defense, no mobile phones. So this is yeah, the kind of thing know, that you would have no to Tinder, do. To, you'd have you know. to fill your, t- this is, these are the kinds of things you'd have to do to fill your time in the mid 40s. So that's just true. Keep that in mind, contextually speaking. Yeah. When she was out of sight, I continued on to number 711. When I got to the door, I did the usual. I reached up and patted the number affectionately. Then I turned the lock and went in. So he pats the number on his door affectionately. That's something, I mean, I think we can all relate to. That's something we all do. I'm always fondling the front of my door. I always get a great kick out of my living room. Every time I opened that door, I felt as if I was looking at it for the first time. It was as big as a barn, but there wasn't any home in Beverly Hills or Pasadena that was furnished any better. It was modern, but not the kind of modern that the department stores peddle, all bare and sharp and angles. This room had been especially designed for me. He by- hates mid-century modern furniture. Sorry. He does. He, he is on the wrong side of history. He's definitely on the wrong side of history. <laughs> well, I hate all of this Dutch crap. <laughs> <This'll>, <laughs> this stuff will be out of fashion in a yeah. year or two. Yeah. This room had been especially designed for me by a kid painter I'd once picked up. What? <laughs> I'm going to read it again. I'm sorry. I'm going to read it again. This room had been especially designed for me by a kid painter I'd once picked up, and it was warm and livable. (laughs) No, did he use the boy's skin to decorate this bedroom? I'm very scared. The the peach flesh strung out on the walls. The blonde toupee. It's a lampshade. (laughs) It's a lampshade. Yeah, he, he... Picked up a kid painter. Picked him up. He picked him up. Plucked him off the streets. Yeah, it's like, hey, I'm a a house painter for hire. I don't know. It's like he's like a lemonade stand, but a house, but it says house painting. I want to believe that kid is meant in the like, hey, kid, like you're 20 and I'm 25. Right. (laughs) But. That's not what I'm imagining. I'm I'm imagining a Tom Sawyer, basically. (laughs) Yeah. With his white wash and his being tricked to go to Phil Norris's house. There was a huge cream-colored sofa, all lit up by the afternoon sun, which slanted in through the wide balcony windows. The chairs were big and wide and handsome and comfortable. One wall of the room was something I'd always dreamed of. There was a red brick fireplace entirely surrounded by bookshelves, except for a large area just over the mantelpiece, which was set back especially for a picture the kid painter had got me to buy. 
It was a big painting of a couple of horses prancing around in an open, sunny courtyard against a background of ruined walls. This is something that Phil had always imagined. Phil had always imagined a bookshelf horse painting wall. Like since he was a kid, like but I'm but the kid painter tr- told him, convinced him to buy the painting. Yeah, so he so like this always kid is also psychic. like this kid is also an interior designer who is like brokering painting sales. Yes, but also read his mind to know his like childhood desires of like what yeah. kind of room he wanted. I think is this a sixth sense situation? Yeah, this he's Professor I think, Xavier. I think he's the boy. Oh. You Phil. think Phil Norris is actually the boy? <laughs> yeah. Can you explain that theory a little bit more? Phil, so Phil is projecting his consciousness he's pro- out he's into- He's astral projecting his inner child it's like consciousness. A fight, it's like a fight club. It's like a Tyler Durden situation, yes. Right, so there is no kid painter. It's just he needs an excuse to live out his childhood dream of owning a horse painting and Correct. it's this it's, it's that repressed that he has to it comes um, out this way he has to imagine a, a boy a kid boy <laughs> a kid, kid boy, boy a kid painter <laughs> he has to imagine a kid painter oh boy okay oh. do you like it? so i wanted to ask you do you like his taste in furniture oh no i don't <laughs> uh, it seems gaudy yes. it seems I get a Trump vibe just like, in, not necessarily Trump himself, but like like a Trump supporter. Right. You know, like that, like you, archetypal, like I, yeah, I got I, I did got it things. myself. I did it all by myself, but, but no ev- big deal. It's no sweat. Right. But also give me all the praise. And also everybody else is bad. Everyone else that does the same thing I do is bad at it somehow, and even every- if they're more successful than me. And everybody below my station is bad. They're in a racket. Right. So, you know, it's just one man <laughs> against the world. One Phil against the world. Don't tread on me. He certainly has uh, Trump's luck and love. Uh, Excellent. As we'll, uh, as we'll learn later. The artist was an Italian named Chirico. I'd shelled out 1500 bucks for it on the advice of the kid. And anyway, I liked horses, always had. And the 1500 didn't mean more than peanuts by then. All in all, it was the kind of room you could dream in. I never went through it, but it made me think of the way I had come up from the sidewalks the hard way. I felt I had a right to be proud. So, you know, he came up from the sidewalks. He came up from the sidewalks. A door at the end of the room led into the office. Neither the door nor the office had been there when I'd first moved into the towers. The office was really the apartment next door, which I had rented for the business as soon as I discovered the management didn't mind. My partner and the help used the regular apartment door to get into the office. I alone used the special built-in door. A man has to have his own special built-in door. That's true. I fiddled for the intricate lock for a second, finally got it open, and went on in. Before I got the door closed, a voice said, Hello, Phil. It was my partner, Jerry Stearns. I'd never liked Jerry very much, but he'd been there at the right time with the cash I needed when I'd started out in the game. And since then, we'd managed to get along. It's interesting that there's this guy, Jerry, who gave him cash. 
And this is it going eat, sideways. But this isn't going sideways. They're a partnership. I, uh, what is going on Messy. with Willie? Messy. The thing with Willie is I, There's just, something going on with Willie or Phil. Yeah, or, <laughs> or both. all of them. I took off my coat and asked him how it was going. You could always tell what Jerry was thinking by looking at his eyebrows. If they were crowding his hairline, he was happy. But if they were down covering his eyes, something was up. This is a Muppet? This time, to answer my question, they were up so high that if it hadn't been for the creases, he would have looked like a man whose hair started growing up from the bridge of his nose. Okay. Uh, yeah, try to imagine uh, it. The office was the business. It was every bit as big as the living room of my apartment, but it was styled for utility. The only furnishings were three long wooden tables and chairs for the help to sit on. All my Yikes. Yeah, yeah. All my boys were busy on the telephones or on the sheets. The third race at Santa Anita was about to start and the bets were coming in fast. Because of the heavy track, everybody was betting on long shots. And that's a bookie's paradise, even if the customers insure their bets with the extra 10% and we have to pay out on track totalizer odds once in a while. It's a little bit of track uh, language here. Yeah, I got a little bit of track jargon. A little bit of track jargon. In the jargon. old track racket. Yeah, the track. He never refers to his own business as a racket. Perfect. But he definitely refers to this other is, people's businesses as rackets. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down next to Jerry. His telephone rang. He let it buzz a few times while he lit a cigar. Patient sucker, he said. Then he lifted the receiver and said, Hello? It was a big cement manufacturer from downtown on the wire with a punch bet for 300 Jerry marked the sheet and then played with the pencil in his hand for a while. His eyebrows were about in the middle of his head. I wondered what was coming. Edna's been calling up, he said, not looking at me. Thanks. Phil, the least you could do is talk to her. The hell with her. No kidding, Phil. She's anxious. She's called four times today. It's my nickels she's spending, I said, finishing the conversation. <laughs> it's my nickels. It's my nickels. I wandered over to the other side of the table. Things were quiet in the room now. The third race was on, and although a few bets were coming in for the rest of the card, everybody was mainly waiting for the results of the third. I looked down at the calendar. It said May 21st. May 21st was Rose's birthday, and I hadn't done a thing about it. I yelled out for Fred, a red-faced kid who had worked for me before he enlisted and was shot up in the Marianas. He's insulting his look, but also this, he's like a wounded warrior. Like, he got shot in the, in World War, presumably World War II. He's like, this pimply-faced son of a bitch. It's so weird, because it's like, what? It, I don't think it was cool to hate veterans then. I don't think it was either, especially, <laughs> like, right after the World War, I would imagine. But this book talks a lot about veterans, and Phil does not like veterans for whatever reason. But like also wouldn't veterans be like most men <laughs> like then? <laughs> right. Like it's like the it's like archetypal man is like man who goes out and does war. Right. Like, well, maybe that's why he doesn't like him, you know? 
By the way, we've talked about Rosa quite a bit in this paragraph. We do not know who Rosa yeah, is. Yeah, we still have not been introduced. I forgot Rosa. Get these to Rosa. Oh, no, poor Rosa. <laughs> what about Rosa? <laughs> Who's Rosa, Phil? Who is oh, Rosa? But Rosa was strictly personal, and I'd long ago learned to ignore Jerry's digs. One of the phones rang in another corner of the room. Grabbing the chance to duck an argument, I went over to pick it up. I shouldn't have. It was Edna. I heard the old familiar quiver that my wife used to put in her voice whenever she wanted something. It had the same effect on me that fingernail scratching on a glass window has on some people. Hello, darling. She cooed. I've been calling you all day. I know, Jerry told me. Phil, I've just got to talk to you. Something's come up, and I've got to see you right away. I know what's come up, I thought to myself. Uh-oh. High five. High five. <laughs> <laughs> this, oh boy. Let, let's just, like, take a minute and think about what he said about his wife. Now, there's something that he is not saying okay. here that I think would affect, I'm just going to say, they're they're on the verge of breaking up. They're on the verge of divorce. They're on the out. So I guess in that sense, it does make sense that he would no longer be like super thrilled to hear his wife. But on the other hand, like, He's not saying that to the reader. So no. yeah, it's a me so immediately you're like like why does he hate his wife so much? Right. We <laughs> haven't been given any context for this conversation. Right. I feel like that's going to happen a lot more mm, yeah. throughout this book I'm worried about that too. We've got Rosa who we don't know who Rosa is. Got a lot of people I don't know. We've got his wife who we don't know why he hates, but we's like I hate my wife. Yeah, it's very strange. I know what's come up, I thought to myself. Another touch. Into the telephone, I said. This is a waste of time. Until you're ready to talk business, I don't want to see you. But, darling, that's just what I mean. I've got a real proposition. I think you'll like it. Why don't you come out to the house? I thought it over for a minute. This was the first time in our year of separation that Edna had even mentioned the possibility of a deal, although, God knows, I had tried to make it a clean break, personally and through my lawyers. (laughs) Because everybody knows that divorce through lawyers is a real clean, that's a real clean cut. Yeah, especially for lawyers who are cool with working with a bookie. (laughs) I bet they're very good at divorce. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The bookie's lawyers. All right, I said, but this is the last time. I looked at the wall clock. It was a quarter to five. I'll be there at five o'clock. I hung up, picked up my coat, and headed for the door. Jerry's nose was deep in paper, but I could tell he had taken it all in. Okay, okay, okay. This is not the end of the chapter, but we are going to stop here for this episode. Bill is on his way to Edna's house. Oh. He's going to go to a party. He's going to hate it. There's no way this is going to end well. Oh, you are 100% right. Some bad things are going to happen at this party. (laughs) Yeah, like knowing what I know now, I feel very strange. I am concerned. Well, keep that concern. Hold on to that anxiety. Till next time, a dirt cheap. 
Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Kate Mishkin. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. Murders. Murder. Murder. <laughs>